we're looking um, at Obadiah this morning. So I know you're all going to know exactly where that is and flick through it in a couple of seconds. Page two, 925 in your pew Bibles. And just maybe a little word of caution. Like you'll know when it, when it comes, you'll know once we've read it, what the text is like. But if you are here for the first time, and this is maybe your first experience of Christians and of church, and you're wondering, what is this about? And I get up, and my task is to read the book of Obadiah. I'm just, I'm building the scene for you a little bit. It's maybe quite difficult to understand at the start, but I can assure you we're going to go on a bit of a journey and explore this text in more. So please don't think we're all mental when you first hear it. I'm just trying to think of what your perspective would be when you hear the words that we're about to read. You're all nervous now, aren't you? What is this weird book he's reading from? This isn't according to Ross, this was actually written. So, Obadiah from verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. And you will live in the clef- and you, live- you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, <laughs> who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Temen, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against you, your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune. Nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster. Nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster. Nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives. Nor hand over the survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Cana will possess the land as far as Zasareth. 
The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sheridad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The Lord's. That's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> no. Clive's away for one week, and this is what I get left with. I promise you, it's an exciting... I'm really not building this up well, am I? It is hopefully an exciting message. One, actually, I've got to admit, I feel privileged to bring this morning because it's, it's a privilege for a, a preacher as you're preparing God's word to be so spoken to by God yourself, and I felt he's really hit home the message that comes out of, of this particular book to myself this week. So I, I, I bring you my heart this morning and something that God, God is personally challenging me on. So we're starting our new series this morning entitled Little Books, Big Ideas. And the aim of this series is to explore some of the, the minor prophets, the smaller letters at the end of, of, of the New Testament, books that you're maybe unfamiliar with, you don't necessarily read because sometimes they're small, right? And we like, we like our favorite books. We've got the popular ones we like to go to. If we're thinking about the prophets, we'll go to Isaiah or the Gospels. And we can ignore these seemingly, what, insignificant books? And yet one of the things we want to explore is the big ideas that come out of these small books. But I realize that, that many of them may be really unfamiliar to you. There's a consequence. You might struggle to find them in your Bibles. And I want to confess at the start, after six years of theological education, I still guess where Obadiah is every single time. <laughs> and I find it really funny that we somehow are unwilling to allow for that. So I've, I've developed techniques over the years when I'm sitting next to people because I don't want them. I'm a minister. I can't be not knowing where the books are in the Bible. So I've developed techniques in which it will look as if I know exactly where I'm going. And I want to share that this morning. So as we go throughout the series and people are sitting around you, you feel comfortable when we mention an obscure book that you've never looked at and you know exactly how with confidence to look like you can get there. So the opening technique, all right, is always know generally where the book is. If it's a minor prophet, you know it's the end of the Old Testament just before the New Testament. And the main aim then when you open your Bible, and this is an important part of the technique, you want to open with real confidence. Don't open at the beginning because everyone's going to know this guy doesn't know where he's going. Open midway through near the Minor Prophets. Then once you kind of get into all the obscure books that you're not sure of the name of, but you know they're small, so you can flick a few pages. It's at that point, and always chunk. Don't just do a few pages. You want to show that you know where you're going. Just, you can at that point gently, with a really pious face on, work through the books. <laughs> glancing down at times until you find the exact one that you're looking for. Tried and tested technique. But if you want the more humble approach, you could use the contents. I don't, know. I don't know why as Christians we don't use the contents. It seems to me that you become a Christian and you should know where every single book is in the Bible. Feel free to use the contents. You have complete, I'm going to use the contents at points throughout this series as well. <laughs> there we go. There's your opener. So the idea is to explore some of these smaller books and look at the big ideas that they present, the great lessons that we can learn from them. And as, as we've explored already, we're looking at Obadiah this morning. So the question I want to ask at the outset to begin thinking about is what is the big idea? What is the big idea that this book that, that you'll admit isn't one you're necessarily left feeling really encouraged in reading and you've probably got lots of questions about how you understand God coming off the back of this. What are we really meant to take away from this book? What is the big idea? Sibling rivalry is, is what defines the context of Obadiah. So if you've got brothers or sisters, you'll know what it's like 
to fight your brothers or sisters, right? I mean, I'm getting their head nods and stuff like this. My brother and I always used to fight. Not fight as regularly as some brothers. We would, we would save it for special occasions. If you're going to do something bad, do it well. That was our philosophy. So we fought on numerous occasions. I remember, and I can never forget, that our final fight, the fight beyond, the fight to end all fights in the Maynard household. And it was because my brother was standing there in his room and my brother's, he was about, I was 18 at this time. I'm ashamed to say I was 18. And my brother was a bit older. And he was getting big. He was training at the gym. He was putting size on his shoulders and his chest. He was a muscly guy. And I'm the older brother. All right? I'm, he's significantly bigger than me at this point. And I'm not happy about that. So we're in an argument. And he's winning the argument. I know he's winning the argument. But I'm not going to admit defeat. I'm the older brother. So I, I keep pushing my point. Eventually, it gets a bit rough. And then we get into this, a bit of this fight. My brother pushes me against the bunk bed and holds me there. And I remember in that moment, I very rarely switch in anger, but I switched in my brain and I said, no, this is the day, young man, when you learn who's in charge. Nature decided I'm the older brother. And I'm not, I was so arrogant. I'm not allowing for this. And we had this big fight. And the unspoken rule in all of our fights was that you never punched. Bruises can be detected by parents. You never punched. So, so we're in this particular fight and he's on the floor and I'm wrestling him. And I don't know why, but I just thought he needs to learn. <laughs> it's terrible. And I punched him in the face. Now, to this day, I swear I did not hit him that hard. Unfortunately, my dad came up the stairs and called us outside, as he would here in the commotion. And my argument of I didn't punch him very hard fell at the wayside when he was bleeding with a bruise on his forehead. But then my dad says, boys, I can't believe you're fighting in my household, a household of God. And he gives what all children hate, right? That disappointed look beyond anything else. You'd rather he screamed at you or shouted at you, but no, he looked at us with tears in his eyes. So my brother starts weeping. I start weeping, and then my brother looks at me, and this is why we've never fought again since. In tears, he says, I can't believe you punched me. You're my brother, and I love you. <laughs> oh! <laughs> ruined. Absolutely ruined. So we've never, ever fought since then. We're the best of friends. Now, you may think, what has that got to do with anything? Sibling rivalry and, and sibling fighting and, and arrogance. The reason we got in the fight in the first place was because of my arrogance. I wanted to somehow teach my brother a lesson. It was ridiculous. But these two themes are so vital to understanding the story of Obadiah. So can anyone name uh, two characters in the Bible uh, who uh, were brothers that would always rival, rival each other? Easily. Yeah, boom. Jacob and Esau are the two that fought. So Genesis 25 sets the context. We begin with these two brothers and their story. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there was twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. Interestingly, that word red, apparently in some translations, can mean ginger hair, dependent on how you interpret it. I don't know why I want to associate myself with Esau, as you'll see later. Um, afterward, his brother came out, and his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So these two brothers are, are fighting in the womb. They don't even wait till they're born before they start their fighting career. And once they've been born, they, they continue to fight in many different ways. And 
and they have families. Their families have families. Their descendants grow until both of these brothers have separate nations of their own. Jacob, um, his descendants were called the, the, the nation of Judah. And then Esau, his descendants were called the nation of Edom. And you'd have thought, at that point, they've grown up. They've got numerous families. They've got all these descendants. They've built a nation. Surely, at this point, the civil, sibling rivalry will stop, and they'll be civil with one another. But they continue to fight. They continue to undercut one another, to bicker, to look for any opportunity to do the other one over on so many different occasions. So then we come to this little book of Obadiah and ask the question, well, then why is God judging just Edom, right? It's, it's Esau, it's his descendants, it's the Edomites that are being judged throughout this book. What does that mean? Why, why is that the case? So I want to tell you the story of the context of Obadiah. So hopefully the book will just make sense to you. Unfortunately, I have a strange imagination. And when reading the book, the only way I could picture what was going on was picturing it like a, a fight scene in a playground. Now, that may sound obscure. I'm just going to say, if you're leaning with it, go with it, and we'll, see, and we'll see what happens. But it's hopefully a helpful way to understand the story. So I want you to imagine that, that Judah is playing in the playground. You know who, who Judah is. And, and, and Judah is, is a good little boy, generally. He's, he's misbehaved with his, his father at some point recently, but he's enjoying the swings. He's enjoying the slide. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful scene. And out of nowhere, to ruin this picturesque scene, comes Babylon. Historical note, Babylon was the nation of the Babylonians, the people that at the time ransacked Judah and Israel and the whole nation of Israel. So Babylon walks through the gates of the park, bolsters over a big swagger on, straight up to Judah, picks him up and starts ruffling his hair. Initially pulls off his bag, throws out the stuff on the floor. Then he slowly begins to really beat on Judah, really laying into him. Judah's crying. It's a horrific situation. Up in the home, up in Judah's home, is Edom. Edom is Judah's brother. He's sitting in his own room, and he's watching out. He's watching his brother getting beaten. So not only is he not helping, but he's actually laughing. He's enjoying the situation because, you know, Edom is secure in his home. I've got my parents to look after me. Judah, what an idiot. Who would play in the park when Babylon the bully is around? We all know you're not meant to play there. I'm going to enjoy my security. I'm going to enjoy my home. And not only then, but Babylon the bully turns away for a brief second, and Judah comes running down the stairs. Sorry, Edom comes running down the stairs, runs outside, and he steals Judah's sweets and runs back into the security of his home. Hopefully that analogy begins to put into context the massive political situation that's going on in this particular book. Because the whole of Obadiah is about the judgment upon the Edomites for their arrogance and pride. Not only did they, they watch from the security of their homes, Judah being ransacked and destroyed, but they enjoyed it. They reveled in it. They were arrogant about their own personal security. Obadiah 3 verse 4 says this, Your deep pride has blinded you to the truth, tucked securely in the clefts of the rocks, safely out of reach. You say to yourself, whose attack can reach up here and bring me down to the ground? Even if you fly high as the eagle, Believing yourself strong and free, and put your nest among the stars, I will have no trouble bringing you down. Isn't that a scary sentence? To think that God would say that to these people, I will have no problem bringing you down. No matter how high, how lofty, how great and secure you think you are, that's a scary side to be on. So historical note at this point is that the Edom, the Edomites, their people in their nation, was generally built 
in the rocks of the mountainous region that they lived in. So when it talks about clefts of the rocks, they were built in the security of their actual nation. You can see it, I think, clearer on the screens to my left and right. They were actually built into these mountains. Their houses and citadels and everything they lived in was built into these mountains. You can see the ruins there. So they had incredible security in that sense. And they believed themselves stronger and better off than other nations. Verse 12 then says, You should never have gloated over your brother's tragedy that day or being secretly happy about all their misfortune. You should never have celebrated the people of Judah's decimation. You should never have acted so arrogantly on the day they suffered so much. So what's the big idea? Pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. C.S. Lewis, in, in Mere Christianity, he says this, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud person is always looking down on the things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The Edomites had become so secure in their own strength and their ability that they could sit in in smug, arrogant judgment upon their own brother's nation as they were destroyed by the Babylonians. But pride comes before a fall. Because we know later in, in the Bible and in historical records that Edom was, was also brought to judgment and ransacked in a similar way to Judah and to Israel. Pride comes before a fall. And the question I was, I was asking when, when I read this was, why, why is arrogance so bad? It always seems, you know, God always gets really angry at arrogance and pride. What is the main, why are Edom being judged so severely for this arrogance and for this pride. And the more I thought about it, the more I I prayed and looked for God's word, the more it became so clear it's because we worship a humble God. We worship a God in whom humility is vital for us because it's a key aspect of his character. Humility um, is defined in the Merriam-Webster's dictionary as the quality or state of not thinking you are better than other people. The quality or state of not thinking you are better than other people. How beautiful is, is humility as a characteristic? You know when you see someone who's, who's humble, and it's sometimes almost difficult to articulate what it is about them that is, that is humble. You know that, what, what is a quality of humility that's so hard to articulate sometimes, so hard to explain, because you just meet a humble person. And I don't know about you, but I leave going, wow. Like, I was blessed to be in their presence. There was something about that person that was humble. I can't explain it, but, but there was something about them. Arrogance seems a lot easier to define. You know when you meet an arrogant person, you remember what it was about an arrogant person that you dislike. And do you know what? I hate arrogance. I can't stand it. And I, I was thinking, why do I react so strongly against arrogance? And do you know what? I think, if I'm honest, it's because in my worst moments, I see in that person what I don't want to be and what I know I am. In my worst moments, I see the arrogance of that inner beast coming out, and I hate that person, but I see it in me, and as a consequence, I struggle with it in other people. Humility is such a beauty. This message has ruined me, by the way. So if I get emotional throughout it, I'm sorry. I just a picture the challenge that this concept of humility is to a world that calls us to have our own rights and to strive for our own position, and that you must put yourself first. And that it is completely opposite to everything we're ingrained and, and, and told to believe and, and to act. And the reason I believe it's such a beautiful characteristic 
is because it's part of the character of God. I mean, he didn't sit up in the heavens looking down upon his humanity, smugly going, oh, you messed up. You got it wrong. You're dirty. You're unclean. I don't want anything to do with you. I like my security up in here in the heavens. I'm not going to bother with you guys. You've, you've done it. You've lost your chance. In fact, he entered the messiness. He limited his power and, and took on the flesh of, of humanity. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was God on earth, God with, with skin on. He was, he was a humble carpenter. He was born amongst animals. He was poor. He was homeless. He was a refugee, and yet he was God. Doesn't that blow your mind? The God that we worship. This is how the God that we worship shows himself to us in the greatest demonstration of humility this world has ever seen. Philippians verse 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he is in the former God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Boom. I've, I don't like, I, if people keep saying it to me, and I get annoyed at people saying it to me, but I'm the one that keeps saying it. So I apologize for that hypocrisy in myself. Everything about Jesus screams humility. He's washing the disciples' feet. He's calling us to serve. He's saying that the first should be last. He's saying that when you go to the the house and you're the honored guest, don't sit at the the designated right seat. Sit at the lowest seat. That If the host comes and sees you're worthy, he will move you up. And then finally, he died on the cross for us. Not, Not just us as in us that think we're good, but he died for even those who were crucifying him. He died for those who were mocking him. He died for those who were jeering him. Can you get a greater display of humility? If humility really is the quality or state of not thinking you are better than people, then we worship a humble God. And it's at this point that you start to understand why God struggles with the arrogance and the pride of the Edomites. Why he struggles with a nation that says, we're secure, we don't need you. We've got this sorted. Arrogance and pride is so opposite to God's character, but not his, just his character, but who he calls us to be, because he calls us to be a humble people. And as I was thinking about what it really means to be a humble person, I thought about Mother Teresa. And you may sit there and, and go, oh, that's such a cliche though, isn't it, Ross? We associate all qualities of meekness and humility to Mother Teresa. And I was going to come with an excuse, but I haven't got one. Because the truth is, actually, yes. Because I think we see those qualities demonstrated so well in this woman. And there's one thing in particular that I want to mention in just a second. But but for those who don't know, Mother Teresa was a nun from Argentina. She worked particularly in India, in Calcutta, amongst the poorest of the poor. This woman dedicated her lives to serving other peoples who had not. She won a Nobel Peace Prize and many other different awards and and prestigious awards, but yet never allowed any of that to go to her head. She never claimed a certain position and always gave back. Now, she would have had her faults. Let's not not say that Mother Teresa was perfect by any means, shape, or form. 
but she certainly displays humility to us. And there's a book I was reading a while ago by a guy called Shane Claiborne, um, Irresistible Revolution. And in that book, he actually met Mother Teresa. He traveled over to India. And the thing that struck him most in his whole experience away was when he sat with Mother Teresa and he looked under the table and he saw her feet. Her feet are so deformed and so disfigured. And that's actually a good photo. They've got even worse since that photo was taken. Uh, Mother Teresa has, has passed as well, I should probably say that. But the reason her feet are like this, because he went to ask one of the other nuns that was in the, in the, in the area, he said, why? Why are Mother Teresa's toes and feet so deformed? And she said, well, when they get shoes to give out to the poor, to the children, Mother Teresa wants everyone else to get the shoes that fit them. So by the time it comes to her to pick her pair of shoes, to pick her sandals, whatever it is, she never gets a pair that fits her. They're always a couple of sizes too small or built weirdly for her feet. So over the years, that's a consequence of her self-sacrificial love. How beautiful is that? And in a world where beauty and how we look is so important, I think that she would give that up for others is amazing. Again, C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, true humility is not thinking less of yourselves. It is thinking of yourself less. I know that Clive's um, mentioned that a while ago, that, that particular quote, but I think it's so important because I don't want you to go away thinking, oh, great, Ross told us we need to go away and, and act really sad. And if we have any qualifications or position, never be able to talk about it and always kind of say, oh, you know, but I am rubbish at this and I am rubbish at that. That's not the essence of humility. It's not thinking of yourself less. It's thinking, no, it's not thinking less of yourself Thinking of yourself, it's a hard sentence to say, thinking of yourself less. Thinking more of the other. Putting your rights aside, putting your position aside, putting your power aside to help others. So what does this look like practically? It looks like a friend of mine called Ken. Andy and Zoe will know Ken from, from another church. <laughs> Cease mentioning the name. And, and, and this Ken was one of those guys who started off as a car mechanic, but then seemingly over time managed to be able to fix everything that ever existed. You know one of those people that you could just give him two things that don't make sense and he'd build you a rocket ship? He was one of those guys who could fix anything, and he would serve selflessly in the church hour after hour. I would often go home after a long day of work, and he was still there. He didn't get paid. He never wanted recognition. In fact, he got embarrassed if you would even thank him for what he does. And I remember being really struck by this, that Ken wasn't, I'm not the only person that, that was struck by Ken's attitude. This was so many people in the church saw what he did, and yet he never asked for recognition, position, money, anything. And I asked him one day, I said, Ken, what, what, what is it that makes you do this? And he said, I just, I just want to serve God, Ross. As a matter of fact as that, and got on with what he was doing. Humility looks like a friend of mine um, called Nathan. And Nathan used to be a head teacher. He had um, numerous degrees to his name. He was a really smart guy. But I was always struck by the fact that in conversation with me, I was, <laughs> I mean, this guy was far more intelligent than I was. I wanted to listen and hear what he was saying, but yet he would always ask me questions. He never sat there and tried to tell me what to believe or say this or that. He was always like, oh, Ross, so what do you think? What's, what's your position on that? Does, is what I'm saying making sense? And I was so struck by that. That he's, he's, his position is greater than mine. He, he, he knows more, and yet he wants to know what I think. And sadly, I think 
and have experienced that so often the most destructive thing in church life and in our churches across the globe is arrogance. If there was one thing that destroys relationships, if there was one thing that breaks the unity that we want to demonstrate as a church to those outside, it is arrogance. And you know why I'm challenged by this? Because I know that I'm not, not guilty in this. And I'm sorry if, if in my ministry at any point I have been in a position where I have been arrogant and made you feel that I have somehow had a position as pastor or whatever that means that you're not as, as, as worthwhile or whatever it may be. Because if we don't get this right, what do we say to the world? It's arrogance in, in, in beliefs that somehow says, yeah, no, I, I get what you're, you're saying, mate, but look, this is, this, is the, this is the way you need to think. This is what you need to believe. If you're going to be coming here, this is it. It's arrogance in, in, in the way of, of position. No, I understand you can do this, all right, but, but I've got this sorted. I'm the one, this is my position in the church. I can hold this. I can do this. It's arrogance in, in being unable to say sorry. And it's so hard but so worthwhile. Pride comes before a fall. We worship a humble God. Can we be a humble people? Let's pray. Oh, I don't know what to say apart from May we act as Jesus acted. And may we be a church family that so seeks to love one another that we'll put aside our rights, our position, our qualifications for the sake of the other. Jesus, help us to be humble. Amen.